0: KMTT Kimitzion Tzetorah will be hosting Havav Yitzhak Blau, who will be giving a series on modern rabbinic thought. Two weeks ago, we started to look at the thought of Rav Meir Simcha, Koyen from Dvinsk, the Meshechachma. Then we took a one week break while my father gives here on a different topic. And now we're going to return to the thought of Rav Meir Simcha before we move on to some other achronim in the subsequent weeks. We have already focused on the centrality of the free will and the Khira in the thought of Ramey Simcha, as he viewed that he viewed that as a central component of the human and the religious personality. We also focused on his view of the relationship between the natural order and the miraculous and the significance of the natural order in his thought. I'd like to explore a couple of other themes in Rav Meir Simcha's thought today. And we'll start with his approach to Gedusha, his approach to sanctity. And here Rav Meir Simcha is adamant about avoiding attributing inherent sanctity to anything other than the Ribbon HaSholam. There seems to be a fear of a vodazara, of a certain dualism, in the attributing inherent sanctity to other things. And Ramayr Simcha's adamant, the only thing that has an inherent sanctity is the Ribbon HaSholam. And this is manifest in his approach to great individuals, and to Kedushat Makom, and to places that we say have sanctity. So let's begin with a few examples of this. In Shmod Perk Yotet, when it comes to Matan Torah... So the Torah says as follows. So it's explaining the prohibitions and the restrictions associated with Harsinai during the revelation of Matan Torah. And uh, people and animals are not supposed to go up the mountain, right? you will not live if you ascend the mountain. However, it also says, When you blow the horn, Heimayeluvahar. Then be, the animals will be allowed to go up the mountain. And the question is, is the last part really necessary? Why does it need to say, Dimshoch HaYovel, Heimai Yelubahar? Right? Just say, don't don't touch Harsinai, don't let your animals try to go up it during the process of Matan Torah. So the Meshech HaChema there in Shemot Perch Yetetet Pasa says as follows. So first he just says, maybe it's just to end with a more positive note, right? Limdat Torah Derech Eretz, Right? You don't want your last thought to be Lo Yeh. Shall not live. So rather than ending with Lo we end with a positive note, El Hema Now this is certainly a theme that we see elsewhere in Jewish thought. We see even in certain Haftorot that we read, we would prefer not to end with a more negative thought. We'll even sometimes repeat another Pasuk or introduce other P'sukim to end with a more positive idea. But this is not a broader theme in Rameir Simcha. However, the Meshach goes on to say a second suggestion and he says, one of the principles of religion, he actually says, right? to, to get, eradicate idolatry. Right, there's no inherent sanctity in, in all of the created order, only in the Creator, only in the Rebona Sholom. So now there becomes a problem. right? Anytime one picks the location for a grand moment in religious history, there enters the possibility that people will start to attribute an inherent sanctity to that Makom. So says the May Meir Simcha, the Torah did not want people to think about Harsinai in that way. Think about Harsinai as somehow has some inherent sanctity that the Torah had to be given there, and it's qualitatively different than every other place in the world. So says Rav Simcha, that is not the case. In fact, what does the Torah say? The second Matan Torah is over, It becomes a place for animals to just wander around. Right? While wow, there was divine revelation going in Sinai, of course it's a holy place. At that point, right, there is a death penalty associated with being on the mountain. But that reveals that the Kedusha is just a function of the existence of the Shekhinah there, the presence of the Shekhinah there. When the Shekhinah is there, then indeed it's Kadosh and Lo yichya. Once the Shekhinah has left, it's just another mountain like any other mountain. In the B'mshel Chayoveel, Hema Yeluvahar. And he quotes a Gemara in Tanit, Lo hal-adam mekomo. which again suggests that it's the inherent sanctity, the significance, is not in the place per se, but in the religious ideas that are happening there. Right? It's the person that sanctifies the place and not the reverse. And he even quotes a more obscure halachic source in the Sifra that even in the Beit Magdash, there are certain way, ways that a Tamimais might be able to enter. Right? He says, right, from the back. Without getting into the halachic details here, what, Rameer Simcha seems to indicate there had to be a halachic way for the tummy person to come into contact with the Mikdash, to again make this point, that it is not the Makom that has inherent sanctity, it is only the Rebona Shalom. And therefore, when it comes to the Makom, there's always exceptions, just as in Sinai there are exceptions or the sanctity ends once the revelation is over, so to even in the Makom HaMikdash, there are exceptions. This idea of Rameir Simcha is used in a very interesting way in terms of his interpretation of Chet HaEgal and the aftermath. And here again, this is in Shemot uh, Perk Bet Pasig Yotet. Simcha begins by suggesting that everything is a function of Torah ve'munah. Right? The real basis of religion is the Torah and faith. And all Kedusha, again, is not somehow an independent force, an inherent sanctity, but they are only details of the Torah, right? Chol HaKedusha, Eretz Yisrael, V'Yushalayim, Hema Pateh Vesnifei HaTorah, V'neikashu B'Kedusha And therefore he says, Ein Chilok L'chol Yinei HaTorah, there's no difference regarding Torah matters, Bein B'makom, Bein B'sman, whatever time period it is, whatever place it is, V'hi Shaveh Ba'Eretz Yisrael U'B'Chutzaretz. It's the same in Israel and Chutzaretz. Levar mitzvot except for the mitzvot that depend on the land of Israel. Now, clearly, in the halachic system, chumoda masrot and Schmita and the like are not the same in Israel and chutzvartz. But the rest of the Torah, which is the bulk of Torah, says in the Simcha applies equally everywhere. And this, of course, relates to a very interesting debate in general in Jewish thought, where the Ramban, based on Safri, famously says that all mitzvot and chutzvartz don't share the same status in Eretz Yisrael. There seems to be a suggestion that the Torah was only mechayev, the mitzvot of Chutzlaritz kind of as practice, so they would not be, they would not be forgotten upon return to Israel. Of course, the Rambam would still admit that you are chayev min to fulfill the mitzvot in Chutzlaritz, but it would seem that the essential practice for every mitzvah, even things such as tefillin and Kibraveim, would be in the land of Israel. Other mefreshim, of course, were adamantly against this idea, and they insisted that it's not really what the sefrí means and they would give various interpretations. This is not really the time to talk about it, but if one looks at various mefarsh rashi in Parsha's Akev, there are all kinds of other interpretations. very interesting Radvaz Vaz on this, trying to neutralize the point. Just to mention one famous example, Rashi and Ekev seems to say the same thing as the Ramban, and he says that the Torah says uh, to fulfill mitzvahs such as tefillin and, and mezuzah and chutzaret, so they won't be new when they come to, when you return to Israel. Famously, the Gra and the Kesava Kabbalah suggested that Rashi couldn't possibly mean that, but rather that Rashi was talking about Chumod Masrot, and he had written the abbreviation in the Rashi Tevo, Tafvav Mem, and then a later scribe had said, seen Mem, and mistakenly written and Muzuzah in place of Chumod Masrot. But then the Rashi read only about Chumod Masrot, which everyone agrees are only in their essence in Eretz Yisrael. But other mitzvot would, in fact, be equally valid in Chutzlerts and Eretz Yisrael. Be that as it may, it's just noteworthy that uh, the footnote here in Rabbi Kutman's wonderful edition of Kachmah argues that the Ramban and the Chachma need not be at longer on this point. I would uh, beg to differ here and suggest that uh, the, the emphasis of each one is quite different. The Ramban, certainly in several places in his commentary on the Torah, is uh, at pains to emphasize that all mitzvot are only realized in their fullness in the land of Israel. It seems to me the Meshachachma's emphasis is quite the opposite. The Meshachachma wants us to think of Torah and our relationship with show him about what it's all about. And that's something that certainly transcends boundaries of geography. Right? Certainly the Meshachachma would agree of all the valuable religious reasons to live in the land of Israel. At the same time, putting on tefillin is the same mitzvah and chutzlitz and the land of Israel. And here the Meshachachma continues the theme to talk about people as well. Right, it's the same thing regarding individuals. The Torah is not different for Moshe Rabbeinu or for any individual. There's a sense here, again, a, a strong emphasis that Torah transcends time and place and also transcends individual personalities. There's not a separate Torah for Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay, now this, of course, leads to Ched HaEgel, because Ched HaEgel represents precisely this error. Right? The people fall into a panic when Moshe Rabbeinu was not around. Right, so According to Meshach that reveals the sense that Torah can only happen with Moshe Rabbeinu, right? That Moshe Rabbeinu is an inherently crucial piece of Hashem's ability to convey Torah. And therefore, if Moshe is absent or if Moshe is late, this is reason for panic. This is reason to make some kind of form, some kind of image that will then enable them to access the Torah. And Rabbi Meir Simichel points out this, again, relates to the difficulty we have, that human beings have in relating to an abstract God, right? A non-corporeal, non-visual God. And there's always this desire for some kind of physical representation, some kind of physical image, something concrete that one could devote one's uh, religious devotion towards. But of course, this, here and in this uh, need, in this human need, lurks the possibility of a Vodazara, which is something where Meir Simcha is very nervous about. So now, Cheta Ego becomes this uh, overemphasis on the crucial nature of Moshe Rabbeinu, this panic when Moshe Rabbeinu was not there. And therefore, this need to create some kind of other form which will enable them to pursue their religious service. And this is exactly what Moshe complains about. And then Rameir Simcha says, read his very powerful words. Moshe Moshe cries out like a stork. Do you think there's something about me? There's some inherent sanctity that I have without the command of God? Therefore, in my absence, you felt the need to make the golden calf. God forbid, I am also just a human being, very talented human being, but a human being. The, the transmission of Torah does not ultimately depend on me. And even if I hadn't been there, the Torah would maintain its pristine status and its sanctity as is. The Torah does not depend on Moshe Rabbeinu. He goes on to suggest, Rameer simcha suggests, uh, illustration of this, that, the entire 38 years that the Jewish people were in the desert, when they were nazufim b'medbar, right? According to the Yushalmi and Tanis in Perigil Malachadal, Hashem did not speak to Moshe. Which again would seem to indicate would seem to indicate that it's nothing inherent about Moshe. Would it be an inherent item of Moshe being his greatest? So of course, who cares what Am Yisrael is up to? But it sounds like Moshe is only connected to the religious practice of all the Am Yisrael and their relationship with the Ibnos Shalom. And therefore, when Am Yisrael messes up for 38 years, also there is no. No Devar Hashem to Moshe. This, is, of course, uh, the Yushalmi, of course, is picking up on the fact that the Torah has all kinds of mitzvot that Hashem communicates through Moshe during the first two years of Yitzhiat Mitzrayim. And then in the middle of Sefer B'minbar, all of a sudden we jump ahead to the 40th year. Right? There's a missing 38 years, as it were, in the Torah. So the Yushalmi picks up on this and suggests that Hashem did not communicate with Moshe during this 38 years because wasn't was zuf, which for Meir again, serves to argue that it's not Moshe's inherent sanctity that is really what's at work here. And he says the same thing even with the Mikdash in the Mishkan. Right? Do not think that the Mikdash and the Mishkan are somehow inherently sanctified. They're only sanctified due to the Ribbon Shalom and their role in the world of Torah. And that is true about the Luchot as well. Right? Don't think that the Luchot have inherent sanctity even the Luchot when, when Am Yisrael messes up and then the Luchot can be broken. Now perhaps comes the most profound insight of Romeo Simko in terms of this story. Many Mephoshim want to know how Moshe could break the luchot, and okay. there even seems to be something a bit brazen about it—that the luchot here are forged by the Ribon Shalom, and Moshe feels comfortable breaking the luchot. So there are several various suggestions being offered to why Moshe did so. Right? one suggestion uh, that appears in the Rashbam is that it wasn't a conscious choice; just that Moshe was so pained by. What he saw with Chei HaEgel, he was so shaken up that he was not able to hold the Luchot. They simply dropped, dropped from his hand. Other Mepharshim disagree and claim there was a conscious decision on Moshe Rabbeinu's part. But then, even then, there are various interpretations for what, what Moshe was trying to accomplish. Right? Some say he was trying to tear up the Shtar tuvah, as it were. Right? That Am Yisrael would be held less responsible if they were no longer married to the Ribbon HaSholot. Some say Moshe wanted to shake up the people, make them realize that they really did something wrong. Right? That would explain why he doesn't break the luchot when he hears the news from the Yibbon Hashan, Right? He knew very well, he certainly trusted the Yibbon Hashan's word, that they'd made Ched But he came down and, as an educational imperative, broke it before their eyes, that people would be impacted by this dramatic gesture, and they would think about doing tshuva. However, according to Rameer Simcha, there's a new point here. It's not only that he needs to do this dramatic act To shake up the people and make them think about what they've done wrong with Chet Haegel. But rather, and here Rameer Simcha says very powerfully, Im Hevi HaLuchot, had Moshe Ben put the Luchot down, hayu kimachlifim Egel baluach, It would be as if they exchanged the Egel Azav for the Luchot. v'lo Sarumi Tu'utam. They did not depart from their error. Here Rameer Simcha says something tremendous. The whole mistake has to do with relating the Torah to be dependent on a specific concrete item. That one cannot just have a relationship with the abstract conception of the Rebono With a personal God who, has, who is not concrete. So if you bring Luchot, there's just a sense of, well, there's a new holy item, right? One could think that Torah depends on Moshe Rabbeinu. One could think that it depends upon the Egal And now one could think that it depends upon the Luchot. So for a Meir Simcha, it wasn't so much that Moshe Rabbeinu had to shake them up, but rather that he couldn't give them Luchot. Right? There had to be a sense that... The Luchot also are not crucial for a relationship with the Ribbon Ushel. And Ramea Simcha says that this message was conveyed throughout Jewish history by the Luchot and the Shiviluchot being in their own. Right? It's a famous quote from Chazal, Luchot Luchot, munachin baron. It says Ramea Simcha, let's look at the Luchot and the Shiviluchot. The first Luchot, of course, were fashioned by God, Masael The second Luchot had the involvement of Moshe, right? This is a distinction we discussed when we were talking about the Nitzit. For Rameir Simcha, though, this distinction leads to a different point. The ma'asei lukim and the broken, they are the shivrei luchot, the first set of luchot. The luchot fashioned by Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, remain whole. Says Rameir Simcha, this also makes the point. Right? Would one think about inherent sanctity, one would think that the luchot fashioned by God will keep that sanctity forever. Says Rameir Simcha, no, th- even something that Hashem was involved in, that does not have inherent Kedusha. And Hashem has inherent Kedusha. Not the luchot, and even these human luchot they remained whole as opposed to the first of the Luchot. This is an ongoing reminder not to get too caught up in a specific physical representation. Ramey HaSemechel also brings added support from this. He mentions the uh, famous Psukim, Moshe va'aron b'chonah v'shemu'a b'karei Shemo. Name, right? They call to God and God answers. It says, one of the things the apostolic is trying to say is this is even before the a Beda Mikdash, Right, uh, You might think that only in a Beda Magdash could one turn to God and find a response. No, Moshe and Aaron and Shmuel are all able to do that. Again, not that the Beda Magdash is irrelevant to religious life, but again, one should not get too caught up in objects or in geography. Right? Religious service is possible on the highest level in any context. And he quotes the idea that this is part of why one can only daven to the bono not to anything else. Here, the Meshachachimah seems to side with the Rambam on this issue. We've talked about in the past that Rameer Simcha is, seems to be influenced by the Rambam. He refers to the Mishnah Torah and the Moron of frequently in his commentary. So this fits in also. There's a well-known debate. Can one daven to intermediaries? Right? Certainly in our tefillah, in the Piyutim and Tzlichot, there are certain tefillahs addressed to the Malachim. And those that justify it would say that, of course, there's only one Rebun Shalom, but the can have those under him who are in charge. And therefore, it might make sense to address a tefillah to a Malach, to help out in arguing before the Divine Court. The Rama, of course, is adamant that this is problematic, that we need a purist monotheistic conception in which there's only one God, and that is the only being who's ever addressed in tefillah. And here, R' Meir Simcha seems to endorse that position, and again, this would make sense in light of what we said. Rameer Simcha is concerned about Avodah Zara, he's concerned about starting to attribute inherent sanctity to other things than the Yubon As part of that kind of purist, purist, monotheistic conception, he follows the Rambam that one can only pray to the Yubon Now here, I do think I should put in a little bit of balance. Right? Rameer Simcha, again, as we've said, is interested in downplaying the inherent sanctity of any place or any person. At the same time, Rameer Simcha does not deny Ha'achot of P'tushat Mako. So just to provide a little balance, I'd like to mention two other sources in Rameir Simcha. One is a source in Sefer Breshit, where Hashem is addressing Avraham. This is in Perek Yud Gimel, Pasuk Yud Dalad. So Hashem says, To Avraham, So says, Rameir Simcha, so he says as follows: that that the, even though even though it is under foreign dominion at this point, right? Avram has not yet got the land of Israel. It's under foreign rule. Nevertheless, as Simcha, even though it's tachet Yad bechol Lobat it retains its sanctity. So just like even after chur ben eretz yisrael retains its kedusha, even without a beit megdash, it halachli has kedusha. So to before it's been conquered or settled by the Jews for the first time, it also has kedusha. So, Sana Enecha is basically an argument to like look beyond the political reality of the time. It's true. If one looks around, one sees the Knanim ruling over the land of Israel. But Tzana look beyond that and recognize the Kedushah of Eretz Yisrael. So here, Amir Simcha does not deny that Eretz Yisrael has Kedushah with or without the Beit Midash. And even before the Jews have settled there. At the same time, it's a thrust of his commentary to kind of downplay the inherent sanctity of any place, of Kedushat Mako. I just want to mention one other source in this context before moving on to another theme. This also fits in with the comment Rabbi Simcha says in Bamibra Per Paragzayin, Pasuk Aleph. Where there, Rabbi Simcha makes a distinction between the Mishkan and the Mikdash. That in the Mishkan, all Kedusha has to do with the vessels. Right, there's no Ketushat Makom. Every Makom is just a temporary point in the traveling of the Mishkan. Have where the Mikdash, there is a Ketushat Makom. And probably that Ketushat Makom is that it lives on even after the Mikdash m- 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 is destroyed. And then our Merah Simcha makes an interesting parallel. says that's also why with a Shul. Right? Where the Shul is Mikdash Ma'at. So a Shul has a certain sanctity associated with the Makom even after the Shul ceases to function. Right. So it says Rameir Simcha, it's the same idea that there's a Kedushat and Makom that exists and in the Shul it is like, more like the Mikdash than the Mishkan in this context. So that's just to provide a little balance. Though as we've seen Rameir Simcha is adamant in various places about not seeing any Makom or any person as having inherent sanctity and being crucial for the world of Torah. I'd like to move on to one other theme here. Rameer Simcha also talks about the fact that the mitzvot are meant to be appropriate for the human individual, soul and body, meaning mitzvot are not given in a way that would make it impossible for a physical corporeal being to keep them, and I think there are a few uh, implications of this. In dvara Perak Yud Gimel, excuse me, Perak Yud, Pasik Yud Gimel, so the Pasik says that we're supposed to be Shomer Mitzvot, Litovlach, it will be good for you. So it says, or may that's exactly the point. The Torah is something that doesn't weaken a person, doesn't make it impossible to go on, but rather, the Torah is something that a person could flourish with, flourish with spiritually and flourish with physically as well. And he says, right, the Torah does not demand fest, does not demand solitude, which is something uh, a constant, possible presence in the world of religious thought. It says Simcha, is not what the Torah is all about. Only one mitzvah, right here. R' Simcha portrays. Yom Kippur as an unusual mitzvah, right? There's one fast, right? One time you're in yes to not eat. And he says the same thing about Brit Milah. Mila Shigankin ha Kumoshakatubit Mura. Okay, he assumes that Brit Milah is about lessening desire. Nevertheless, he says v'hu ba'od adnar, it's while you're young, the cholera potent, it's easy to be healed. And then he points out, of course, if there's a danger to the child, we forego the Milah. Again, the idea being that Mitzvah are not meant to be something dangerous to human being. Mitzvah are meant to have to do with spiritual and physical flourishing. Now, one implication, I think, of this is spelled out by Meir Simcha in Sefer Vayikra. In Vayikra, Perik Yudchet, Pasuk Bet, Meir Simcha returns to this theme as well. And there, Meir Simcha relates it to a specific concern. Right there, oh, first, actually, I should say a wonderful Peshat has in the Midrash. There's a famous Midrash that... The mitzvah divided between the 248 positive commandments and the 365 negative commandments are parallel to the limbs of a human being, right? Resh memchet evarim, 248 limbs; shin semechi gidim, and 365 sinews. Without getting into exactly what the physical reality of this comparison is, says Rami Simcha, why is the midrash making this comparison to tell you this point precisely? Asher chalakav yatimu imchal keatara that the parts of a human body are corresponding, they fit the parts of Torah. I.e., Torah is not something that should be in opposition to the human body. Torah is something that can go together with the human body. Now, of course, Rameer Simcha is certainly not suggesting that, uh, therefore, the Torah is about hedonism, or uh, uh, unrestrained uh, indulgement, of course not. But at the same time, nor is the Torah interested in weakening the human body. Torah is not interested in solitude or fasting or the like. And here Rameer Simcha says... That in Bayek the Torah understands that people struggle with the Torah's restrictions in the world of Arayot, in the world of sexuality. And in fact, this may be one of the things that was troubling them in the midbar. Right? Chazal famously suggests that some of the complaining in Sefer Ba midbar had to do with the restrictions that Halacha imposes in the world of sexuality. So says Rameer Simcha, part of what's being pointed out here in Bayek Yerchet is that the Torah would not set up a system that is impossible. Right, so it must be that the human body is able to live with this. Right, the Torah makes it possible for a man and wife to live together in a married relationship. It must be that this is something that the human body would find okay, that the human body could flourish in such a context. It's not impossible. This, of course, I think is an important point, certainly in modernity, where certainly the message about, uh, about sexuality that one gets from the broader society is quite different to what the Torah is getting. It says, Reb Meir we understand from the broader themes of Torah, the Torah is not interested in weakening the human body or making it impossible. It is not the Torah's approach to food or the Torah's approach to physical health. One will understand and see the Torah's restrictions on sexuality in that light. Right? This is something that a human being could flourish in, both spiritually and physically. I'd like to conclude with one last theme in Rameir Simcha, and with this we'll wrap up our study of uh, his thought. Let's stick with Vayikra Perak In Pasuk Dalet, and Haydar, there, there seems to be a shift in sequence regarding different words used to refer to the mitzvahs of the Torah. So in Vayikra Perak Yod Ched, Pasuk Dalet, we hear, At Mishpatai Tassuvet Chukotai Tishmuru Leche Beham Notice, Mishpatim before Chukim. Then in hey Temet chukotai mishpatay haadam ani hashem, and here we have a switch to chukotai before mishpatay. Now perhaps one clue for this discrepancy in order might also be who's being addressed. In pasuk He, in which the chok precedes the mishpat, we're talking about asheriaseh otam haadam b'chay the performance of mitzvot by the individual Jew. In Pazig Bahem, it's the community. And the community has Mishpatim before Chukim. So Rameir Simcha here suggests a broader theory about the difference between the community and the individual. Rameir Simcha works off the classic distinction that the Chukim are the mitzvot, that we have rational difficulty understanding, such as Shatnez and Ibom and the like, and paraduma where the mishpatim are the mitzvot that we have an intuitive, rational understanding of, mitzvot such as Kibraveim and the like. Says Ramey Simcha, perhaps there's a difference between the community or the society functioning qua society and the individual guarding these matters. Ramey Simcha suggests that individuals will find it harder to fulfill chukim. Indeed, individual people, many of us, we like to function in, things, in ways we rationally understand. We'd like to use our human intellect and appreciate the, the value, the spiritual and ethical value of the acts we have. And when we do acts like that, we understand it and are more excited about it. When it comes to chukim, sometimes the difficulty understanding the point makes it harder to motivate ourselves to practice these matters, and therefore we struggle. Therefore, says Rameir Simcha, on an individual level, we will find mishpatim easier than chukim. Therefore, Pasuk which is addressing the individual, feels the need to stress the chuk. Ushmartem et chukotai. Then, the Adam is going to foul the Mishpatai more easily. The Torah begins with hukotai to let that individual know that the Chukim are also a crucial component of Avodat Hashem. However, says Rameir Simcha, and here comes a fascinating part, when it comes to the tzibur, it's the opposite. When it comes to the community, then they will find it easier to fill the Chukim and the Mishpatim. And this, of course, raises the interesting question of why. Why should this be the case that the community will find it easier to keep the chukim over the mishpatim? Now, in this context, it might be worth noting that the uh, famous theologian Reinhold Niebuhr has a book called Moral Man and Immoral Society. And in that book, Niebuhr gives several arguments for why it's easier for a human being to function ethically and morally on an individual level than on a, a societal level. Right. Among the factors Niebuhr mentions, he points out how a society never thinks it's acting selfishly, because right? the individual knows that if he's just acting for himself, he's being selfish, he's not helping the other. But a society, everyone says, I'm functioning for the community, I'm functioning for my state. Right? There's never a sense of selfish behavior, and therefore the society can do various problematic things without feeling any remorse. Vermeer Simcha mentions a different factor, it's an interesting factor he mentions. He points out that for Hukim, on a communal level, you can make fences, Right, you could say, we won't do Act X because it might lead us to get to Act Y. When it comes to Mishpatim, he says, you can never do that. How do you see fit to give up in this fellow's money rather than the other fellow's money? So here again, let's contrast this with the individual level. I could be extra pious in monetary matters, and anytime there's a case of dispute, I will choose to relinquish money to the other side. However, again, on a communal societal level, you can never do such a thing, right? Because every Chumrah on one person is a Kula. Every Chumrah is also a Kula, right? Society involves balancing different factors and balancing different forces, and it's very complex. And in some ways, it's easier to set up a society that will be wary, be zealous regarding Chukim than regarding Mishpatim. There's too many factors, too many forces of society fighting for resources, that it becomes very difficult to be just and ethical on a societal level. So here it seems to me Rameir Simcha is making a little bit of a different point than Nibor. It's not just that the selfish behavior gets, gets covered up by the communal clause, but also the, the, just the inherent complexity of balancing the various needs in a society. Therefore says, Rameir Simcha, the society will find it more difficult to fill the Mishpatim. Therefore the first person it says, Mishpatai Tasu Chukotai <tishmowu> Right, We're talking about the Tzibor, they need to hear about the Mishpatim. One concluding point here, the last, the Pasuk of the yachir ends with Vachai Behem, which Rameer Simcha says is a reference to Olam Haba. This also relates to another point made by other Balei machshava that it could be in Olam Hazer, the Jewish people get the reward on a collective level. There's something that Rabbi Yosef Alba points out. However, in Olam Haba, Olam Haba is not a collective endeavor, that's an individual endeavor. So the Vachai Behem of Olam Haba is in the Pasuk about the individual. All right, there's more to be said here. But we will wrap up with the Mare Simcha with this and move on to the next thinker next week.